Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. In today's non-stop world, making quality time for yourself is more important than ever. When you buy a subscription to The Guardian and The Observer, you can look forward to sitting back and leafing through every page at your own pace. From the latest groundbreaking investigations to recipes, reviews, award-winning sports coverage and more. Plus, we're now offering an additional 50% off our three-month subscriptions. Only when you subscribe before the 17th of February. Just search Guardian Subscriptions. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, the Guardian podcast that dives deep into the foul and increasingly opaque waters of the Brexit pond and comes up clutching pearls of wisdom where most people would find, I don't know, duck droppings or something. Anyway, that's about where we are right now, down among the duck droppings, I mean. What with MPs first crushing Theresa May's Brexit deal in the heaviest defeat ever for a government in UK parliamentary history, and then voting narrowly to resuscitate it. Providing, of course, she returns to Brussels and brings back substantive changes to the Irish backstop. Easier said than done, of course. The Brady Amendment instructs May to replace the backstop with unspecified alternative arrangements. She said she'll come back with a renegotiated withdrawal agreement by the 13th of February so MPs can have a second meaningful vote on, rather pleasingly, Valentine's Day. Now, the Eurosceptic press here have hailed Theresa's triumph, but to a lot of people, it looked like she was putting party unity before the national interest. And for the EU27, it looked pretty much like madness. Michel Barnier, Donald Tusk and a host of others in national capitals effectively said, look, this agreement is not open for renegotiation, and what's more, there can be no further talks without a concrete plan from Downing Street that has clear parliamentary support. To make matters worse, hardline Tory Brexiters in the triply misnamed European Research Group started upping the ante. They've let the PM know that the only backstop proposal they would actually back is in fact a version of something called the Malthouse Compromise, apparently known in Brussels as the Madhouse Compromise, which would remove the backstop mechanism from the withdrawal treaty altogether, which of course the EU has said it will never do. So with 53 days to go before Brexit, we have here in Britain a brand new government working group exploring options for avoiding a hard border on the island of Ireland, including new technology, which has already been ruled out many times because it simply doesn't exist. And across the channel, there's the EU's deputy chief negotiator, Sabine Veyand, insisting somewhat acerbically that any EU concessions, or goodwill as the Brexiters would like to call it, on controls at that border between the North and the Republic would basically be a dereliction of the bloc's duty. Brexit, in other words, 
as usual. So where do things go from here? With me to discuss such burning questions as what's happened in Brexit and what hasn't, what's been done and what's still left to do, and how much longer will we be able to stand all this nonsense without going completely and irreversibly doolally, are Jonathan Liss of the think tank British Influence, Joe Owen from the Institute for Government, and The Guardian's very own Jennifer Rankin, who only recently shared a panel with Miss Vayand, so must know what's going on. Welcome to all of you. Jonathan, can I start with you? Just talk us through how May managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory in the Commons last week. I mean, how did we get from the PM saying, this is the only deal we'll ever get, I commend it to the House, and the heaviest defeat in parliamentary history, to this deal is absolute rubbish, I'll go and get it changed, and a very narrow win. I mean, it was all about keeping the party together, no, and kicking the can down the road. Yes, in a word, it was desperation. Um, she's brought herself two weeks to fail, um, brought two weeks of party unity at the expense of later breakdown. So classic May, in other words. Um, no strategy whatsoever, just stumbling from one misstep to another in the vain hope of trying to make it through to another day. Look, this was the most serious peacetime blunder committed by any Prime Minister since Chamberlain, in my view. Uh, It was the the most cataclysmic night in parliamentary history in decades because it failed on every single metric. Um, The PM reneged on a deal she herself had negotiated. So she showed in doing that that we're not a serious country. We can't be trusted. We're not reliable. Now, that is incredibly damaging for the Brexit process because the EU insists on a backstop as the price of, of any deal whatsoever. Um, trying to have a deal without a backstop is like trying to buy a house without a front door. So MPs might as well have been giving May a mandate to colonise Mars. It is totally absurd and it makes everyone else look absurd. It, it, sort of, it means nothing. And it also fails even in what it was trying to do. Because the Brady Amendment was about replacing the backstop with alternative arrangements. Anyone who understands the backstop knows that the whole point of the backstop is to take place only if those alternative arrangements can't be found. So, in other words, we're meant to be looking for those alternative arrangements. So, it's like taking out travel insurance because you don't expect to have an accident while you're on holiday, in other words. It's it's totally nonsensical. And the most important point, I suppose, is that it makes a backstop even more necessary because we've shown that we can't be trusted, that we will go back on something we've agreed. And so the EU is not going to give us any leeway anymore. And so if May and the, and the Parliament, frankly, were trying to demonstrate that we didn't need to be pinned down by an international obligation that way because our word was good enough, they did precisely the opposite of what they intended. So by every single uh, metric, it, it was a, a total shambolic failure. And I'm afraid it'll come to uh, come back, come to, back bind to, haunt us, us. to haunt us for many, many decades to come. Well, okay, that's a fine start. <laughs> Jennifer, uh, was that, I mean, I mean, imagine that was pretty much how the whole thing, the whole episode was greeted in Brussels, wasn't it, really? I mean, the EU waited all of six minutes, didn't it, before coming up with its response, which I presume was pre-cooked. I mean, was there any surprise at yet another Brexit U-turn, in, even one quite as monumental as this? Um, and I guess the second part of that question is, uh, is that really what's prompted, because the clear line coming out of Brussels now really is, you know, it's okay. it's up to you to fix it. It's up to you, the British government now, to come up with the fix. Um, I mean, is that a direct result of events in the Commons uh, last week? This realisation that unless there is a, you know, a very clear and solid majority for a Brexit solution in Parliament, then there's there's simply no point even talking to, to, to London as things stand. 
Well, I think this is a message that's been coming through for some time now, that the EU is, is thoroughly fed up with Brexit. Officials think they spent far too long on Brexit. It's taking too long. And they really thought they would be free um, and working on uh, on other things and concentrating on all the other priorities they have now. But there's been an, an increasing sense over the, the last, say, six or seven months or even longer in the Brexit negotiations that it's really up to the British to take ownership of, of this. And there's a sense that... EU negotiators have that the UK is always coming back to the EU and asking them to come up with the magic solutions. And and what we often hear from diplomats here, well, it's, it's not our job to do magic. It's not our job to conjure up a unicorn. And it's really up to the British government and now the British Parliament to find out well, what it can agree on. And yet that agreement, of course, isn't just to, for a, a magic solution. When the EU is saying, tell us what you really want, what they mean is tell us what you really want, but please come up with something that fits within the, the red lines that we've been we've spelt out loudly and clearly now for two and a half years. There's a sense of frustration that this uh, the debate in, in Parliament now is really sort of taking place in complete isolation from... Well, and unreality. Said I mean, it has to come up... You know, well, the, the Parliament has to come up with something Thing that is compatible with reality, basically, isn't that? That's the point. Exactly, I and I think what what Jonathan said is very resonant, actually, with what people are saying here, and and that Theresa May really has lost a lot of trust and goodwill by going back on her deal. Uh, officials weren't impressed with that. They think she's given in to the right of her party, and they don't think any deal will be possible on the terms uh, of the ERG. It's, you simply can't square the ERG with. Um, with what uh, the EU has said its red lines its red lines are so i mean they really think it's that this is a problem in london and it's not something that anyone in brussels thinks they can fix so it's really the message loud and clear to the prime minister has been you know this is something you've got to sort out and come to us and when you think you've got a, a way to ratify this deal yeah Okay, Um, Joe, over to you. The Brady Amendment wasn't the only one to get voted through, was it? Um, Despite sending the Prime Minister off on a mission that on the face of it actually makes it sort of possibly more likely that there'll be a no-deal Brexit, MPs also declared in another amendment that they don't want that no-deal Brexit. Is that, I mean, how seriously should that, I mean, in in kind of parliamentary legal terms, is that, what does that mean? I mean, the short answer is probably that it's pretty meaningless. (laughs) Um, And it doesn't really tell us we didn't already, anything we didn't already know, right? We've seen over the past few months this so-called majority against no-deal form inside Parliament. uh, And this was just one more expression of it. But the point you made about having things that are compatible with reality, I mean, the reality is now that when the minute that the MPs voted in 2017, in March, to trigger Article 50, that is when they set in stone the default option as no deal on the 29th of March 2019. So there's only three ways that MPs can avoid that. They either vote a deal through, they either vote to revoke Article 50, or they extend and simply kind of delay it. And actually, what was interesting about last week is MPs were presented with one of those options, the idea of an extension, in a couple of different forms. There were a couple of different amendments for it, and they pulled away from that. So actually, what we kind of saw is that although there is this in-principle disagreement with no deal, 
that majority could not be mobilised in favour of... maybe. Not yet, exactly. And this is where next week will start to come in to see whether the kind of increasing sound of the ticking clock and the realisation if the Prime Minister doesn't come back with anything from Brussels that actually this is the last chance. And that was sort of what uh, some people felt happened last week is that the Prime Minister promised the votes that we're going to have next week as a way to kind of tell backbenchers, listen, this isn't your last chance, just give me a few more weeks. But no, I mean, the No Deal Amendment last week was kind of the very floor of what you would expect in some respects, actually. What we need now is a kind of, well, what are you prepared to do in order to avoid No Deal? Are you going to back a deal? Are you going to extend... We need a a positive project around something. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, Jennifer, back to you, because the, you know, what the government at least seems to think is a positive project is something called the Malthouse Compromise isn't it? Um, that's what the Brexiters and, the, and, and May are pinning their hopes on to deliver the goods you wrote about this uh, just the other day, can you just talk us through a little bit, you know, wh- where did it come from what does it rely on and more importantly I suppose is there any chance whatsoever of, of the EU moving in any sense towards it? So the Malthouse Compromise is the plan of the hour and it takes its name from Kit Malthouse, um, the Conservative MP who, who brought, and Housing Minister who brought together um, both wings of the Conservative Party from Remainer, former Remainer Nicky Morgan to ERG including Jacob Rees-Mogg and he's brought all these MPs together behind one plan uh, and the gist of that is first of all to more or less get rid of the, the withdrawal agreement as it exists but instead uh, to extend the transition to December 2021, ditch the backstop and come up with some other sort of rather vague forms of trade facilitation. And, and they see that the importance of this is that they're not relying on technology, but existing existing sort of methods of, of uh, allowing goods to, to flow across borders and that UK would sign up to various um, EU rules on, um, on uh, food and, and animal standards in order to make that easier. So that's, um, that's their plan. And they, and they say, if, well, if Brussels doesn't agree to that, then we'll, we'll go to plan B. And that's a, a managed no deal where we just, again, extend the transition and then have a and then have until the end of 2021 in order to prepare for World Trade Organization terms. And that all sounds fine. And the genius of that, of course, is it unites the Tory party. But that's not the priority for, for Brussels, far from it. Uh, and in fact, this, this plan is really a million miles away from anything that could possibly be agreed by the EU. And that the really um, bizarre thing about it is that it seems just to have landed without any awareness of the discussions that have been going on since the, the Brexit negotiations started in, in 2017, since uh, Theresa May triggered Article 50. And really for the, for the EU, this is a complete non-starter. The EU said time and time again, they are not going to get rid of the backstop, that they need the backstop as that insurance policy to avoid a hard border. But then there are all sorts of other problems with this plan as well. The whole idea that you can negotiate a free trade agreement through Article 50 while you have the UK still as a member state, the EU has said all long it's not going to do that it's also said that it won't allow the uk to have um, a managed no deal either you have a deal you have the withdrawal agreement or you have no deal there isn't a a happy halfway house so really from the eu's point of view this is this is a bit of a non-starter but it does it is sort of keeping westminster mps entertained for a few days (laughs) um well that's pretty damning what i mean what what where where could the eu give 
grant? I mean, what are they? Pre- what are they prepared to to offer? Well, I mean, it's 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 possible that um, they. I mean, the EU could come up with some kind of legal assurance on the backstop, further legal assurances, I should say, because there was already there were already some um, assurances given in December, also at the beginning of January, um, to really sort of underline in red pen that the that the EU doesn't want the backstop to be the basis of the, of the permanent trading relationship. The EU wants this to be temporary, and it's fully prepared to look into alternatives, um, including um, including technology, including special arran- arrangements to facilitate trade. It just doesn't think these are possible at the moment. But once the UK has left the European Union, the EU is ready to negotiate on all of these things. So that's, um, that's the message that the EU has, has, been, has, has given. But um, some MPs would like to see a bit more sort of legal certainty about these guarantees. So there's a possibility you could get some kind of legal document to really to wrap this all up. But the problem with that is just there's a lot of scepticism in Brussels that that will really make a difference. Well, exactly. That yeah. will get uh, the deal over the line. But also, I mean, also just to, to add briefly as well that the EU has said all along that it that it is willing to renegotiate the non-binding political declaration. That's that's definitely a possibility, but that relies on the UK making a big shift in its red lines. So for example, the, the UK if it wanted to wanted to could negotiate a customs union with the EU. That's the that's Labour's preferred option, but it's certainly not Theresa May's preferred option because then the UK wouldn't be able to go off and and do all these uh, trade deals with with other countries, with the US, Australia, New Zealand, etc. So that would be a big sacrifice for the Brexiteers, and that just sort of undermines the whole premise of, of Brexit. Uh, and busts or one straight of through her red line, exactly. Uh, Jonathan, you wanted to? Yeah, I just I just wanted to ask Jennifer a quick a question about what she thinks of this idea that's doing the rounds in the last couple of days about maybe extending Article 50 for a couple of years to negotiate that free trade agreement if the EU can find some clever way of getting around that problem with Article 50, that you can't negotiate the, the trade deal while you're part of the EU. I actually suggested doing this um, in, the guard, in the very page of The Guardian in 2017. <laughs> uh, and of course, there's, no, there's, not, there's not really an appetite for it at the moment. But the Irish Times uh, was talking about it the other day. Do you think there's any chance at all? I'm not picking up any sense at all that the EU would be ready to do that. As far as they're concerned, the withdrawal agreement is done and people have stressed, Jean-Claude Juncker, for example, has stressed that the the EU is ready to begin negotiations on the future the day after ratification, but not before. And they they really do see this as an important sort of two-step process and they're not going to and the feeling has been all along that if you if you allow the UK to start negotiating the future then you're not going to get an agreement on on the Irish border you're not going to get certainty on the money although possibly citizens rights um, both sides could agree on that but the EU's been very consistent that it it really wants to follow its own legal advice on this which is that uh, you can't negotiate a free trade deal with a with a member state it's just a, a legal impossibility for the EU and the EU is uh, is one big legal organisation full of lawyers so that's still the answer that's, uh, that's coming <laughs> okay. through on that. Um, Jonathan just back to you very briefly um, Jennifer was mentioning there some poss- the possibility of some sort of you know additional legal uh, assurance do you think anything that the EU could give at this stage will ever satisfy the hardline ERG 
Brexiteers. Emphatically not, because <laughs> it's the raison d'etre of the ERG never to be satisfied. They are born victims. They want to be martyrs. Um, they are desperate to have nothing that they could possibly accept because um, they know that Brexit can't be delivered. And rather than owning that total failure, they want to be saying, like some people say about communism, well, it would have been great if only it had been tried. And so they, they want to they want to fail so they can blame Remainers, blame Brussels, blame immigrants, blame whoever it is for the rest of their lives. That we've seen in the last 30 years from the Maastricht rebels onwards that they always demand more, even when they are given what they want. So, you know, we, we forget that in 2015, the idea of Brexit was to have a Norway-style deal. Now, if you suggest Norway, it's, uh, it's, it's treason and betraying the will of the people. So, you know, no deal was never, ever considered, for example, during the referendum by either campaign. The Remain campaign never talked about it either. And now it's seen as somehow what people voted for. So there's a profound dishonesty at the heart of the ERG. And Maine must know uh, that they are not to be trusted. Let's, never, let's not forget, it wasn't the Remainers who tried to get rid of May in December. It was the Leavers. And yet, sort of, she still keeps coming back to them. Uh, instead of tacking to the Remain side, she keeps trying to appease these people who not only cannot be appeased, but who will try and defenestrate her at the earliest opportunity. Hmm. OK, Joe, if we sort of look back inwards a little bit, moving away from the whole, from, from the Brussels, you know, nego- well, non-negotiations, really. And let's talk a little bit about the, the possibility of, a, of an Article 50 extension, which is beginning to really look more and more inevitable, I suppose, partly just because of the sheer weight of business that has to be got through the UK Parliament before the 29th of March. Is that is that not the case? Yeah, I think there's kind of two big preparations. There's one which is just the physical stuff. What happens at the border is business ready, new IT systems, which is clearly humongous. But the legislative task is also really complicated actually for deal or no deal so no deal it's kind of you know from if you assume next week is going to be taken up with big votes in parliament about where we're off to and what next from the monday afterwards there will be 26 sitting days in parliament between then and the end of march and for no deal you're talking six bills big pieces of primary legislation that need to finish their passage and i think just under 500 statutory instruments are yet to make their way fully through Parliament and some of them have yet to be introduced. So there is a massive task. But actually, I think one of the things that we heard with Philip Hammond the other week talking about a possible, I don't know, what did he call it, a technical standstill to try and get legislation through was actually about what happens if there's a deal. And this is one of the big tasks that I think can often be overlooked is that the so-called meaningful vote, this one-off in Parliament, is just the first hurdle in getting a deal ratified. Because there's going to be votes on all the on all the other stuff. So there is then this thing called the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, known as the WAB around Whitehall, and that will be under under UK law. That has to be passed. Otherwise, there's no deal. So it doesn't matter if the meaningful votes through. You also have to have this withdrawal agreement bill. And so some people argue, well, it must be straightforward. You know, MPs are going to vote for the meaningful vote. Once you've done that, it's the same majority. You just get legislation through. But that, I think, underplays some of the really big risks with this. I mean, for a start, if you look at a session when we joined the EU, there was a vote, I think, in 1971 where... I think there was a majority of over 100 in favour of joining the EU. But when the legislation came, 
it scraped through second reading on a majority of eight. And the government then had a, you know, wasn't a, minor, a minority government depending on the DUP as we are now. And so any majority that gets formed around the meaningful vote will have to be retained for, I mean, some of the past EU treaties we've put through in legislation have required around 100 votes. So you need these people to vote with you time and time and time again. And the, one of the really big risks around this is not just your main majority dissipating when they see some of the pretty, I think, understatement would be uncomfortable things in this withdrawal agreement bill, like giving EU law supremacy over UK law in certain areas, powers to spend money to Brussels, install, reinstalling the European Communities Act for the transit. All of these things will be pretty uncomfortable for Brexiteers mm. once they've got through this meaningful vote. But then there's this question of amendments. And what happens, right, and this is a really interesting question, right, what happens if an amendment gets passed that says, in this legislation, we will make the, fi- the payment of finan- the financial settlement to the EU contingent on a future relationship? Now, MPs can do that in our legislation, but that would set us up to abrogate the treaty that we have just signed. And so how does the EU respond? And then will there be high court challenges? I mean, I think Maastricht... There was a delay in ratification because one Mr. Rees Mogg Sr. took the case to the High Court to say you can't actually ratify this deal because of what it says in the legislation, etc. So all of these complicated, knotty reasons why 26 days in the best case scenario looks ridiculously ambitious to get everything through by the 29th of March. Now, if a big majority can be found, then that is not too impossible but there are some really knotty questions that we'll have to go through over the next few sounds nightmarish um all right back extensions then look looking extension looking looking pretty much necessary jennifer um there's been a lot of talk we mentioned we alluded to it a bit earlier uh jonathan there's a plenty of talk of the eu 27 being willing to offer um an extension uh but there is a question now isn't there of how long it might you know how long it should be uh maybe not as long as two years like uh, as jonathan was mentioning but you know there is a reluctance as i understand it in brussels maybe to offer too short an extension is that is that the case well there's lots of chatter and lots of discussion about extension but there isn't one fixed position and and eu leaders have never discussed the question of extension so often when you you hear diplomats venturing opinions, but often caveated with, well, we don't really know what the position will be. And time and time again, it comes back to the point of, well, extension for what? So if it is an extension for ratification, for simply getting that vast amount of legislation over the line, then I think that would certainly be possible and possibly within a relatively limited time, depending on how long the the government thought it would need to get um, that amount of legislation through Parliament. But then again, if it was an extension to to try and, um, you know, maybe for a a referendum or another election or or something else, then I think the EU would really be looking at a a longer extension, possibly even a a year or so, although this is all slightly speculative. But the EU is very wary of having the Brexit drama 
polluting its own ear business. And I'm using that, that, that particular word because it's, it's a word I've heard used here, that they're very unhappy about this idea of um, the pollution of Brexit sort of leaking into the rest of the EU business. And, and remember, this is a really big year for the EU. You're going to have a, a changeover of leadership at all, in all the top institutions, including the European Council and European Commission. You're going to have serious negotiations on the EU's next seven-year budget at the end of this year. And he really wants to get on with these tasks. And they're, and they're very wary, concerned about Brexit becoming tangled up into these issues. So what would happen if you're having the, the EU discussion on the next seven-year budget, but the UK is still a member state? Does it, does it get a vote? Does it get a say? So all of these questions would have to be worked out. So even a, an extension of 12 months is by no means a easy or even a foregone conclusion and I ally to that of course one just to stress once again the the EU would ex expect that the UK would have to participate in European elections at the end of May in order to have a longer extension and then that gets the government into really difficult territory of having to run having to campaign in European elections otherwise you'd see a whole host of legal challenges and the EU insists there's just no way the UK could have an extension for any long spell of time but without participating in those elections mm. it's just not democratic it's not right right okay and and i mean the other problem with an extension jonathan from this end i suppose is that Theresa may has repeatedly said uh you know that there's no way the uk is not leaving on the 29th of march i mean does that mean that she's given you know even taking down everything that, that jennifer's just said that she's basically boxed herself in politically it's going to be a politically it's going to be very difficult for her to ask the the, the eu for more time I mean, politically difficult, and Theresa May tend to go <laughs> together quite well. I mean, has anything Theresa May's done been easy or, or competent uh, since she's been Prime Minister? Look, I mean, she is... What we forget about Theresa May's, um, in some ways she clings to uh, her red lines. But in other ways, she's prepared to discard them very easily. You know, we forget now that a transition was one, you know, was once a red line she wasn't prepared to tolerate. Uh, she wanted to end free movement to people in March 2019. That was ditched. She wasn't prepared to give um, Brussels money. Uh, that was that was forgotten about. So look, I mean, the 29th of March has become an article of faith, but only because it was negotiated in the back rooms, were decided in the back rooms of Downing Street, and then sort of appended to the repeal bill. Uh, that was it, no one was talking about 29th of March in 2016. So I don't think it is the most difficult move in her premiership to say, look, I had a deal, it didn't get through. If it had, we'd have left on 29th of March, but it hasn't, and therefore circumstances are intervening. I think it is absolutely extraordinary we are even having this discussion about whether a date can be moved. Any other Prime Minister um, who is worthy of the name would have a degree of flexibility and sort of leadership skills that would say, look, when, when, when events change, so do the policies. Only Theresa May can cling to something so arbitrarily that this is even something we're discussing. Mm. OK. I mean, Joe, does all of this make the prospect of a sort of no deal by accident more likely? Do you think? I mean, you know, the, the countless amendments and, and, and votes in, in in the House of Commons that might push us over the over whatever the eventual deadline is, or or you know, may eventually asking for a, for 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 one kind of an extension and the EU only being willing to offer another one. I mean, it, we could yet fall through the cracks, could we not? Yeah. So I'm obviously no deal kind of not the right way of putting it, but has the advantage over all the other options of being the default. Yeah. So if you can't agree on anything, 
then that is what will happen. But I think it's certainly the case that the government is clearly, for want of a kind, you know, there's, there's lots of um, no deal is better than a bad deal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what we have seen, you know, if you just look at no deal planning, they've kind of aimed off all the difficult things and left them until late. And we still don't know what our tariffs would be. There's all of these uncomfortable political questions around no deal that haven't been answered, which suggests that for this late in the game the government at least recognises how difficult it would be to actually even try and pull it off. You know, on the other side of the channel, it's quite clear, or, you know, one of the striking things over the last few weeks was the EU and their talk of no deal, and in particular what happens on the island of Ireland and what they would do around trying to put up a border. Would there, try and ask, would there be a border in the sea between um, Ireland and France, for example? Would they enforce that? It asks some really uncomfortable questions of the EU too, even if you just move away from the economic question, but politically really difficult questions. So that if it is for a, you know, the idea of an accidental no deal, if it is just a technical fix is required for extra time, it seems at least now where we're sitting that there is probably the political will on both sides to to just do it now there's a complication in the uk side that they would need parliament to vote in favor of an extension just to amend the date that is in uk law of when we're leaving that would need a vote in both the commons and the lords but you know again we've seen a majority against no deal if we get to the end of march would would you be able to find a majority for extending quite possibly what would that do to the conservative party is a different question if there's erg for example so it's always a residual risk no deal but actually i think if you look um, at the realities of the situation it's yeah i think there's i mean there's definitely political will on both sides Mm -hmm. to really try and avoid this Mm -hmm. um but the question is whether that will be enough um yeah. The 29th of March. Jennifer, is that your view in, in Brussels? I mean, they're, they're talking a lot about no deal planning in Brussels, aren't they? Yes, I think it's, it's very telling that in, in Brussels, we've really flipped from focusing on negotiations now to focusing on no deal. And that's definitely the, the priority here. And you, of, of course, they're working. They'll do anything to get an agreement if that's possible. But uh, the focus is really on no deal. And so now we've seen some sort of 82 technical notices from the European Commission on all manner of things on to advise different industries on how to prepare for no deal, covering anything from customs to, to VAT to animal welfare and all sorts of things. And then there are a whole host of different legal proposals going through the EU's machinery at the moment on preparing for no deal. And, and these include things like um, what happens to Erasmus students on the, on the 30th of March, if students who are studying in the UK or also UK students studying in the EU, or what happens to pension rights uh, for uh, citizens on, on both sides of the, of the Brexit divide. Of course, it's not, they're not going to be fully protected by the withdrawal agreement, but, but the Commission is sort of asking member states to, to take into account previous pension contributions. So there's lots of, lots of technical fixes going on, with the one glaring exception, which Joe has already mentioned, of the, of the Irish border, and that's the one issue that you will not find any planning, any official guidance or published strategy on, and that's because it's just it's so sensitive for all the obvious reasons, and, and the EU is really tiptoeing around this. Michel Barnier said, if, said a couple of weeks ago that there would have to be checks somewhere um, on Ireland without specifying where. So we don't know whether those checks would be, say, at posts 15 or 20 miles from the border. We don't know if he envisages checks at airports and, and ports. 
and of course there would be questions to ask for the for the other EU countries as well. What happens at French ports or Dutch ports when they get a consignment of Irish goods, which possibly might have some UK goods there? Do they just wave them through? Do they check them? So there there are all sorts of difficult questions for the for the EU as to what a no deal Brexit means on the Irish border, and and everyone is really tiptoeing around that and not um, not really spelling out what will happen. I think very much it is. They are still hoping there will be an agreement so it won't come to having to, to define exactly what happens at the Irish border. John, I mean, you know, a lot of people think that May is simply deliberately running down the clock and her basic strategy is and, and sort of to a certain extent has well has been for some time uh, essentially sort of aiming to force Parliament to back her deal at the very last minute as the only sort of option left standing, um, as opposed to a to a no deal. But there, I mean, there, it seems to be. I don't know whether there seems to be because of growing internal opposition in the cabinet to that approach, doesn't there? And I think particularly Greg Clark. Although I don't know how much he's been to what extent he's been damaged by the whole sort of Nissan story over the last couple of days. But he has been coming out quite strikingly very firmly saying you know business needs certainty you know within the the next 10 days or so otherwise things are really really going to go into into meltdown to what extent do you think this tactic of may might start to sort of you know really really reap some sort of sort of serious internal opposition well i suppose it, it taps into what we were saying at the start which is may has bought herself two weeks of party unity but two weeks only because you have uh, at least five members of the cabinet david gork amber rudd david liddington philip hammond and greg clark who are viscerally opposed to a no deal and you even have a junior business minister richard harrington who's writing the guardian how no deal should be taken off the table which is of course not government policy that's jeremy corbyn's policy um rightly so as usual the remainers are are being sort of you know browbeaten pragmatic while the leavers have it all their way but there has to be a point where these Remainers will say, we did not sign up for this, uh, we are not prepared to send our country over the cliff edge for no discernible reason in the service of a Prime Minister who has done nothing to uh, deserve or earn our loyalty. And uh, that's the point um, where they'll have to put up or shut up. The question is, how many of them there will be and whether it's enough to actually bring May down with them? Because I, I think that there will be enough MPs across the House to stop this car crash from happening. But it's, it's you know, there is a... The Tory party, if the Tory party is intent on self-immolation, you know, it could find a way to get hold of the matches. OK, um, Joe, next so next week, next meaningful vote scheduled on Valentine's Day. Um, I mean, I mean, Parliament made, you know, as we saw last week, half a dozen different attempts to sort of take back control of the of the process. What can we expect in that vein next week, do you think? Yeah, so next, I mean, there's kind of two things happening next week. So what the Prime Minister said is that she would bring back her deal for a meaningful vote by the 13th of February. And if she doesn't do that, she will make a statement about her next steps, which will then there be a vote on on Valentine's Day, which will be amendable, which is similar to the vote that we had last week, that kind of style. Um, I think if you look at it now, it's quite unlikely. It seems at least quite unlikely that the Prime Minister will bring back a new deal next week that MPs will vote on. 
purely if you look at the fact that it's supposed to be around alternative arrangements for the backstop and we've only just set up a working group to work out what alternative arrangements means, the EU saying they won't renegotiate and the Prime Minister set an expectation, at least the last few times, that any deal MPs will have five days to debate before they actually vote on. So all of those things make it seem unlikely that there will be a vote on a deal next week. But what will be this vote around process and what happens next? And there we'll see the interesting question will be, A, are there any more amendments about what should be in the deal? So that's one of the sorts of amendments we saw last week. And then the other big one is around process and trying to stop no deal. So these things, uh, these amendments that Parliament took down about taking control of government time for a certain number of days or single day to try and drive the outcome. Will we see more of those? I mean, the really interesting thing next week will be on where the numbers are. And so those MPs that were bought off, those conservative backbenchers or even frontbenchers, if you believe some of what the press was saying, who were persuaded to vote with the government mm. and not vote for the so-called Cooper Amendment for Parliament to take back control because this vote next week would be coming. So they kind of bought them off with this vote next week. Do they say, time is up, I am now going to vote with the opposition, be a rebel and try and stop no deal and alternatively what happens to those labor rebels that i think there was 14 to 20 or so who last week showed that they were prepared to vote with the government mm. to get a brexit deal over the line and that while they kind of they wouldn't vote in favor with the government's deal when it came back because i mean as some have said like why would you cross the floor of the house to vote for the government to reduce their defeat by one but what they did show is that when they are the deciding factor, they are willing to vote to with the government yeah. to try and get Brexit through. Now, does the do what happens to each of those groups of numbers will be really interesting next week. Will we start to see more from the Conservatives start to make a move against no deal and any ex possible extension? Will we see more from Labour going across to say, actually, we just need to get on with this and get this over the line. I don't want an extension. And that will, I think, be the really interesting kind of um, game. movement be, and game. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Jennifer, um, just uh, moving towards the end here, we're sort of beginning to run out of time a bit. But there's a there's this age old belief or sort of, you know, slogan in, 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 in British government circles, at least, that, you know, the, 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 the way the EU does business is it always agrees at the very last minute. And, and there is this confidence, isn't there, here, that, that the EU will blink, as, to be fair, it very often has in the past. But this is a different situation, isn't it? Yes, I think it, it is very different. And, and the problem with the old slogan is it, it, it's not always right. And we, if you think back, for example, just to the Greek financial crisis and the last instalment of that in 2015, uh, Greece said it wasn't going to accept the bailout package on offer. They had a referendum against it, voted against it. And then subsequently, a few weeks later, the government accepted pretty much that same package, if anything, with a few more strings attached. So it's not it's not always true that the EU will will always give in in the end. Yes, there's there's, there's been a you, you can pick all sorts of negotiations and see instances where they've come up with legal fixes and there've been some sort of creative last minute solutions to it to avoid some some you know disastrous no deal or or to to avoid um, some kind of collapse of a treaty. 
but these tend to be for, for member states and they also tend to actually be very limited in the sense that they don't reopen the original agreement. If you think back, for example, to what was agreed for Belgium when the uh, region of Wallonia had problems with the EU-Canada free trade agreement a couple of years ago, the fix it got in the end actually didn't change any of the substance at all of the trade agreement. So really, I mean, that's, that's, that's about as far as I think the EU would go for Brexit, because really now this is a very different situation to all of those. I mean, the, no country has ever tried to leave the EU before. And so it's, I don't think that what the past precedents are always the, the best guide to what will happen in the future. And the EU has has made a very hard-headed calculation that in order to protect its own economic and political interests, the UK cannot have a unique status where it is outside the, the EU yet has all the benefits of being inside. So I think they will go to the line on this. Uh, and while people in, in London will say, well, this is dogma, at, at the end of the day, it comes down to a, quite a clear-eyed calculation of what the EU's interests are here. So I, I would be very surprised if they gave in on that. It would also be, I think, really quite catastrophic for EU unity if after holding the line for so long on saying the importance of the Irish backstop and on protecting the interests of a member state. If you suddenly said, well, after all that, well, actually, I think that maybe the ERG and Jacob Rees-Mogg have a point. It's, I mean, I think it's just going to send a, a really disastrous the, yes, signal for, for, for the, the EU. Yeah. OK, one last very brief question uh, to each of you. This podcast will return in a month's time, um, at which point we will be a little over a fortnight away from the end of March. Um, uh, where will we be, do you reckon, in a month's time, Jonathan? Um, I think that we will have extended um, Article 50 because um, that is uh, a, a necessary uh, impact of reality. I don't think that we'll necessarily be on our path to a second referendum or a general election, but I think that reality will have intervened that far at least. Joe, I think that's probably quite likely uh it would be interesting to know in a month's time have we got a deal through that will be the big question and um, if we're on to the ratification then i think an extension is kind of easier to at least to sell with the eu if we're not into ratification mode and we're still squabbling over deal then i think we're in a bit more trouble a bit more danger okay, <laughs> i'd Jim. say no to the ratification thing i don't i don't, you don't see think how we're i don't see how may gets her deal through as it stands i think she only gets her deal through if they amend the political declaration either for a customs union which puts jeremy corbyn in an extremely difficult position politically or a norway plus um, which could bring all kinds of excitement and chaos okay now jennifer well, I put my money on some kind of negotiation with the EU on extension and then suddenly discovering that that brings all sorts of problems and is actually far more difficult than, than anybody. Exactly. Realized. And we're all going to be sitting here ev- once a month, every every month yeah. for the next five years. <laughs> Perfect. Lovely. All right. Thank you very much, all of you. That's, uh, yeah, Brexiternity, as uh, somebody called it. Um, that's it, I'm afraid, for this time. Um, my thanks to John Liss, Joe Owen and Jennifer Rankin. We'll be back with a fresh dose of Brexit horrors as promised in early March. Please subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers, join the discussion on Twitter, you just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's brexitpodcast at theguardian.com, that's all one word, brexitpodcast at theguardian.com Till next time then, I'm John Henley The producer was Simon Barnard This was Brexit Means and thank you very much for listening For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.